This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and technically, you can go the rest of your life without eating. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, signsofspice.com. And John says paper clips are just staples for people with commitment issues. There's a lot of advice on how to learn a language, but in this episode, John and I are going to talk about the top 10 worst pieces of advice about learning Chinese. And for most of these, we're going to offer what we think is some good advice in response. Guest interview is with Dave Landis, a boy from Kansas who fell in love both literally and metaphorically, all due to Chinese. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you here from Utah in the United States. Hi everybody, my name is John Pazden. I am in Shanghai, China. John, have you ever gotten any bad advice before? Uh, yeah, quite a bit. Now I gotta be honest, John, I'm trying to think of some terrible bad advice I've had over the years and nothing's coming to mind right now, but there is some bad advice I have come across in the course of learning Chinese. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about the 10 worst pieces of advice about learning Chinese. Yeah, and I help people learning Chinese all the time, and they frequently come to me with like these ideas that they picked up from somewhere. Oh, I heard that if I just do this. And um, usually it's not good advice, and some of these things are in the advice we're talking about today. Well, let's just dig right into this because this is a cornucopia of bad advice about learning Chinese. So, John, you want to kick us off? Number one. Okay, so number one, I've heard this one a million times, and it's don't worry about tones. People will understand you. And then there's the variation of it, which is if you speak fast enough, you don't need tones. Uh, yeah, this is what exactly we mean about don't worry about tones. Because that makes a lot of sense, because what I just said there sounded really weird, right? Yeah, and in Chinese, it would just be totally incomprehensible. So I think where this advice comes from is when people listen to native speakers, they can't really believe that the native speakers are really using tones because they don't sound like a textbook. But actually, it's like this super native, like kind of, you know, fusion of tones in this very natural way. It's very organic and it takes a long time to get to that point. But that doesn't mean that as a beginner, you shouldn't start with having these standard, maybe even slightly robotic tones because you need to build that foundation. You know, I will say a little bit about this is that some people will also get this impression early on. They might get this a piece of advice and then they run with it because at the early stages, usually your, voca I mean, your vocabulary is not usually, it's not large. And usually the things that you're going to say are very kind of standard. And if you're speaking to a native, they're kind of anticipating to a degree. They're expecting what you're going to say, and they're not expecting you to say anything very complex. And at that level, your tones aren't really as important because, yeah, they hear it and they're like, oh, yeah, he's saying this. It's because it's a very common thing. But the, the trick about the tone... Yeah, because the further you progress, the more you want to talk about things that aren't like immediately guessable based on the current context, right? You're not like looking for chopsticks in a restaurant or you're not you know, looking for a bathroom. You actually want to talk about more abstract things, more personal things. You want to tell stories from your past. You want to share your hopes and dreams. Like these are the things that need good tones. Absolutely. So, hey, 
start working on tones. Good a piece of advice from someone about this, as contrast us with some you know good advice here, John, is that aim for 100% accuracy in tones because you'll never hit it. And if you get 80%, that's pretty dang good. I think you will hit it. My advice is start early with the tones and expect it to take a while, but just keep chipping away and you will get there. All right, number two, characters are too hard. Just focus on peeing and speaking. Why would you need to be literate in any language, right? Literacy. Boring, huh? That's right. I remember this early on. I was having this discussion, I think, online with a friend uh, who was of Chinese heritage. And I w- I'd said something to this effect because I you know, kind of, I was scared of learning characters. I'm like, oh, no, it's going to be too hard. And he's like, well, then you're going to be illiterate. How does that sound? And I'm like, oh, oh. So that, that did change my focus on things. Yeah, I think there are only a few cases where it makes sense to not learn characters. Like if you really, really only want to learn a few very basic phrases because you're you're not really trying to learn the language. But come on, that's not that's not you guys. That's right. You guys have been convinced that you can learn Chinese and not just a few phrases, but you can go to a pretty high level. Absolutely. The thing about this too is that there are so many homonyms in Chinese. And when you get further in your studies and in your learning, it becomes harder and harder to associate in your mind the difference between, you know, shi, 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 and shi, right? And so you're kind of like, oh, wait, which shi is this one? What's, what's that one? And if you're ever actually coming to that point and you're having that confusion and you aren't really getting into characters, that is actually a great indication of, hey, this is time for me to really get into characters and, and really start learning this. Also, you do not need to learn characters from day one. Like, it is good to learn pinyin first, learn it well, learn your tones. Um, You can wait a little bit, but don't, like, study Chinese for five years and then start learning characters. Or don't get to, like, intermediate or upper intermediate without learning any characters because you'll regret that. It's going to stunt your progress in the end. Okay, so number three, my personal favorite. Chinese has no grammar, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, I don't worry about it. Well, I mean, it's true that you don't have to worry about it. Worry about it, I don't. Right in the beginning? Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, You don't need to worry about it, but eventually you will see that there's value in maybe studying grammar a little bit. But if you feel like you're doing fine without really, you know, hitting the Chinese grammar wiki up or buying a Chinese grammar book, then you're probably okay. But probably around... Late elementary, intermediate, there are a few things that you're going to want to get straight in your head. Now, I'll counteract this, of course, with one piece of good advice, and that is, hey, don't spend a lot of time like studying grammar. Yes, be familiar with it, get an overview with it, but grammar is patterns, and as you see these in context and encounter them and use them again and again, you become more familiar with them, and grammar is a little bit better to be studied as like maybe to clarify points that you're confused with as opposed to really try to memorize rules so you can try to output it when you need it. Yeah, so eventually you will have an itch, and uh, you're going to want to scratch it, figure out what the deal is with that grammar point, and uh, that's the time to take care of the problem. Number four, worst pieces of advice about learning Chinese. Just read kids' books in Chinese. Hey, they're for kids. Kids are learning. You know, they have very basic Chinese, right? So I should be able to read Chinese books to help me learn Chinese, right? Uh, I so wish this were true. And actually, I think this is true in some languages. Like, I think you can do this in English. You could probably do this in Spanish and French and some other languages. 
But I'm sorry, it just doesn't work too well in Chinese because Chinese is written in Chinese characters and it's written by Chinese people. Well, John, I actually hate to burst your bubble on that, but most of the research I've read is saying that even in, in all the languages you mentioned that it's not usually a good thing to do. I will say that it's a little bit easier, of course, just because reading in any of those other languages is easier because they're alphabetic. Um, but by and large, Chinese... No, 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 it's not just that. It's not just that. Oh, yes, you're right. You do know the intensifier, complexifier of the Chinese kids' books. Well, it's because of the the parents or the educational system's view towards reading, right? So like in the U.S., a lot of parents, they want they want their kids to learn to love reading. And they want to give them books that the kids are interested in. You know, they don't care if it's uh, Captain Underpants and, you know, Dogman and, the, and these like silly books because the kids like to read them and they want them to learn to like to read. But um, you don't find so much of that uh, here in China. I'm sorry to say, like the parents know what's best for the kids. Their kids need to learn more characters faster. And so they're a very different kind of book. Oh, fun stuff. But I think this underscores a very important aspect of why I bring this out about kids' books, uh, why they're not good for learners of really of any language, is number one, because they are not written for learners of, second learners of a language. So first to think about this is that kids, they are native speakers, and they can already speak and understand and communicate a lot more than they can read. So number one, their capability is just a little bit higher than your language will be even if you're at the same reading level. But also on top of that, a lot of kids' books, they are not intended for kids to read. If you think about this, it's, it's frequently adults, teachers, parents, reading these books to kids. And of course, it changes when we get into chapter books, but by and large, this is how it is. And you find a whole lot of special use vocabulary as well that are in kids' books, I would think of just Curious George. If you open up, if you have any of those kids' books or whatever, you'll find that, you know, he swung, he scooted, you know, he he hopped down. You have all these words that are just maybe not common things that you would need to learn or give you an encounter as a second language learner. Right. So, yeah, that is true. Um, it is a complex topic. So there are going to be some books that you can read, but it's just not a general rule to be like, oh, kids' books, that's, that's how I learn. And generally... The stuff that you can read is usually stuff you don't want to read. <laughs> okay, so what if you never bothered with Chinese kids' books, but you've already reached a fairly decent level, intermediate, upper-intermediate? Or maybe you're trying to reach intermediate, and you hear this advice, oh, just pick up a novel you're interested in and uh, get a dictionary and just kind of plow through it. Um, you know, your interest will carry you through and you'll learn so much because there'll be so much vocabulary in that book you don't know. Awesome. Oh, yes. Now, this is number five. And you know what? We've all seen this. I recall one time seeing on Reddit uh, someone saying, all right, I'm going to do it now. I'm, I'm getting into Chinese. And they posted a picture of some, I don't remember, it was just some Chinese novel and like a dictionary. And I'm like, what on earth? Are you serious? You're going to try to do that? And here's what I've come down. There's there's a whole host of things behind this, but what I am convinced is that for there are people who've done this. But I think for any one person who's done this and really has gotten to a high level proficiency or, or whatever in, in Chinese, there's there's gotta been hundreds who've given up because it's hard and it's not a really terribly effective way to learn. Yeah, it's slow, it's thankless, it's exhausting. 
Um, there will come a point in your studies when you do want to make the leap to actually read your first book, like your first real book written for native speakers. And that's awesome, but it's probably not like really early in your studies. And there's lots of stuff you can read in the meantime. And when you are ready for that, you're going to have a pretty solid base of Chinese already. And it's a lot easier to tackle, even if you're reading at a relatively low comprehension level. And uh, we usually define that below 90% comprehension. That's like reading pain. It's pretty slow. But if you are a higher level, you, you have more capacity to handle that type of thing. But for heaven's sake, if you're just getting going, you're elementary, even intermediate, be careful about trying this approach. It's just, it's just there's better ways. And we'll contrast again with the good advice is get some graded readers. Uh, read at something closer to your level, that's really going to help you progress a lot faster. And it's going to be a lot more enjoyable experience too. Yeah, making it enjoyable will just keep your motivation high and it's just a much healthier way to do it. Number six, worst pieces of advice for learning Chinese. Study poetry in Chinese. Oh yes, John, you study the classic poets, right? And uh, that's really going to put, that's going to move the needle on your Chinese, right? All right, so in my first year of Chinese, our teacher had us read Chinese poetry as a pronunciation exercise. And I got to say, I'm sorry, I, I hated it, and I learned nothing from that exercise. Um, some people like Chinese poetry, and that's cool, um, but it's a compliment to your Chinese studies. It's not like the pillar of your Chinese studies because, I'm sorry, but people don't run around spouting poetry most of the time. They talk in everyday language. It's more of like a, a dessert after a, a you know a, a sixth course meal or something, because you know you won't really appreciate and enjoy poetry unless you have a good understanding of the language. And so I think it's instead of something to really learn by, it's something to uh, appreciate once you have achieved you know certain levels. Yeah, and it's a great way to connect with Chinese people too, because you know plenty of Chinese people are really into it, um, but. You probably want those fundamentals first, so don't neglect them. Okay, number seven. I've heard this one many times. So Chinese has these usually four-character idioms called Yu, and there's a lot of them. And uh, Chinese people in their educational system, they, they expect you to learn a lot of Yu. so start early because there's a huge pile of them. Learn those Yu. Learn one a day or one a week until you've learned thousands along with everything else you're learning. Oh, yes. So helpful, very use, right? Yeah, so Cheng Yu are, are a somewhat contentious subject because um, a lot of Chinese teachers do like to push them early. Um, if you're in one of these really hardcore Chinese study programs, you're going to be learning them, and you're not going to convince your teacher that you don't need them. But if you have any control over it and you're really focusing on communication and practical stuff, a lot of these Cheng Yu, they, they can wait just a little longer until your overall level is higher. So I would definitely say that Cheng Yu, it's a bit more of an advanced level thing. Um, and if you just, they're, they're more kind of colloquial. Uh, they're kind of usually for specific situations. And just think about how you might use idioms in your everyday life. So that, like I said, it's a bit more casual. It's, it's kind of with the setting. It's, and so when you're trying as a learner, your ability to communicate maybe isn't as high especially these early stages and, and even get into intermediate stage, is that you're just struggling to just kind of make sense of the language and just put together a coherent idea. And it's a bit 
more challenging now to try to remember something that's a bit more sophisticated or for special use. Um, and your brain power is probably better employed in trying to just basically communicate and get your point across than trying to insert some sort of sophisticated Chengyu that's going to be just perfect for the right situation. Yeah, this is one of those situations where some transference is occurring between like how Chinese people teach their kids and how they teach foreigners. Because, you know, kids, they have no trouble with all the everyday language. So it makes sense to like teach them more Chengyu earlier. Um, whereas with adults, we're struggling with everything. And there's no reason to give Chengyu this special treatment and like this higher priority when we just want to communicate. So um, don't over-prioritize Chengyu, especially if like you never hear them, you never need them, and for some reason you're studying them all the time. Just learn mama hoo hoo and you'll be just fine. All right, number eight. Do 200, 300, 500, 10,000 flashcards every day. That's what you need to do in order to learn Chinese and be able to read and do all that stuff. All right, so I hope you realize this, but language is more than just memorizing a bunch of words. So you got lots of skills to work on. You need to work on your listening. You need to have decent pronunciation. You need to know these words in context. Just drilling flashcards isn't going to lead to fluent you know, communication skills. Definitely. It's going to take a little bit more than that. And so be careful of this flashcard to death thing. Um, I get it, though. It's it's easy, right? It's, it's easy to say, oh, I did X many flashcards. Um, you maybe don't have ideas about what else to do. So, hey, yeah, might as well do flashcards. So, I mean, doing flashcards is better than not doing anything else. I will say that. But one of the challenges about doing learning flashcards or just focusing on that is that here, some of the studies shows that if you're doing a lot of these flashcards, it allows you to, when you see that character or maybe that word, ah, yeah, you're able to remember it and recall it kind of quickly as if you're kind of drilling it. But it's more challenging when you actually now see that word or character in context or you're encountering it in the wild or in speaking because it's isolated. Your, your, your learning of that character is isolated and it's not with like sentences or strings of thought. And so even though why you may be able to recall that and remember it quickly, it's still challenging uh, if you don't have the practice on being able to integrate it overall into your speech and your communication. So that's why we on the flip side of this, we usually recommend, all right, the granddaddy of flashcards or space repetition is reading. Indeed it is. Um, but Jared, I do want to mention one sad little story I have of a client I once had at All Set Learning. Um, it was this lady who was really dedicated to her flashcard repetitions every day. She was using Anki. And she was living in China, and she really need, needed practice speaking. But she wasn't getting out and talking to Chinese people very much, even though she kind of had ways to do it. Because she had to do all these repetitions for Anki, and Anki was telling her, Oh, you have 300 due today. Oh, you have 400 due today. And and she was like a slave to Anki. It was crazy. That's a pretty extreme example. But um, I think it does make the point where, like, if you're in China and you could be talking to people, why are you at home doing flashcards, right? Yeah, this, that's a good thing. In fact, we actually had a guest on our podcast, Jonathan Coveney. And uh, you, you know Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, he's in episode 89, Vocab Apps and Learner Engagement. Uh, and he talks about it. He was kind of a, a flashcard Nazi, if you will. Out this, and he's he kind of claims he's got a bit of a PTSD from <laughs> from Anki and all the flashcards he did. 
Um, he got a little bit obsessive about it. And okay, so to his credit today, he knows a lot of characters. But um, it, it, he, if he, he did talk about in the interview that if he had, if he went and had to do it over again, he definitely would spread his focus on a lot more wider of an area. Okay, so number nine. This is one I've heard a couple times. Just immerse yourself in the language. You'll pick it up. Oh, yeah, that's right. We'll just, you know, learn like a kid, I guess. You know, just be around it and uh, you'll get Chinese. Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, this language seems to resist just picking it up. Um, I know so many people who are like, I don't know what it is about Chinese. Like, you know, I went to Spain. I just picked up Spanish and I went to, you know, Sweden. And I picked up Swedish. But for some reason, I've been in Shanghai for two years and I haven't haven't picked up Chinese. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not surprised. I don't know. There's just something about Chinese. Maybe if you, you know, have some other East Asian language background or native your language, maybe you've been around it. Maybe it might be a little easier. I don't really know. But what we do know is that there are very, very few people of this. I think I know one person, uh, a friend of mine, Carl, who just seemed to kind of pick up the language. But man, that's a, that's an outlier. Everybody I've known has got to put in specific effort. And especially if you're going to learn to be literate and read, uh, you know, it, it's going to take a lot more to really learn those characters. And another thing I've noticed, which is kind of weird, and I've talked to a lot of my friends who are at a very high level of Chinese, it seems like most people that make it to a high level of Chinese study before they come to China, and then they focus a lot on speaking. So for some reason, like learning from scratch in China doesn't seem to give people huge advantage. You know, there's got to be exceptions to that. But if you're not in China now or Taiwan or whatever, and you're planning to come, um, make good use of that time and get your Chinese up to a, to a decent level. Something, this this reminds me of something that came out in uh, some research we did a couple of years ago, John, was that uh, we found that the higher a person's level of Chinese, uh, the more time they spent learning and using their Chinese. Now, I think it, it just kind of makes sense, but I, I had initially <laughs> maybe thought that, oh, shocking, mm-hmm. I know. But I initially had thought that, oh, if you're a high level of Chinese, you don't need to continue studying. But we actually found that the correlation was opposite than what than what I, maybe I was suspecting. And so I, it's just one of these things of that, like, hey, the higher level you go, it's just the more time you're going to put into learning that language and well, you're going to continue to put in time. I don't know. It's a little more complex than that because true, true. I can do a lot of stuff now where I don't feel like I'm studying, but I'm listening to Chinese and using Chinese. So there comes a point when it's kind of self-perpetuating because you can use it for stuff, right? That's right. It's cool stuff. Okay. Okay, John. And for the 10th worst piece of advice for learning Chinese is all you need is X and... Or X, you can, it's a variable. You can insert anything in there. It could be an app. It could be a book. It could be a method. And there are people out there just saying, hey, this is all you need to learn the language. Just, you know, sign up for my program. Sign up for this course. You're going to be fluent. Uh, you're going to read this book or whatever. Just app. That's all you need. You're going to be fluent. Yeah, when Jared says all you need is X, he's not talking about the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Like pretty much no. everyone is going to benefit from a variety of materials. Keep your interest high. And that even refers, I hope you agree with me here, Jared, 
that even applies, and I hope you agree with me here, Jared, to this podcast. <laughs> We're recommending yeah, lots right. of different <laughs> things too. This is not the silver bullet and neither is anything else. That's right. Uh, so I, what do you need? You need X, Y, Z, you know, multiplied together and squared. You know, I mean, that's what you need. You need you need it all, really. And I, I, I even hate to say this, John, is that, you know, I think early days of learning Chinese, you know, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, extensive reading. That's all you need. No, no, it's not true. You know, you do need, if you're going to really learn to be communicate and be proficient in the language, you need to be a well-rounded individual. And there's no one resource, no one program, no one app, no one thing that is going to hand that to you. I mean, and I would even say, like, we were just talking about the one previously, just immerse yourself, you'll pick it up. Immersion is awesome, but that's actually one of the aspects about being immersed in the language is that you're going to be hit on all different sides. You're going to be encountering this language in so many different ways, and you're going to have to use it, but you also need to study, and you need to put in the time, and that's how you reach that thing we call, I call the F word, fluency. Yeah, and this also touches on an important topic, which is learner autonomy. If you're making decisions about what you want to learn, how you like to learn, you know, how you like to structure your studies, what you'd like to do more of, then you're going to be more engaged, you know, increase your motivation, you know, you'll have more variety, everything's going to get better. So um, people are going to tell you, just do this one thing and, you know, maybe try that one thing, but it's not going to be your only thing. So now, hopefully, when you hear some of these pieces of advice, you are just a little bit wiser and a little bit smarter. And maybe you might be able to say, well, actually, and you have a rebuttal or you have uh, something you can say, hey, the, take, and get, and I will say this, that John, is that most people giving these pieces of advice, they're not, uh, they're well-meaning. A lot of people did learn uh, Chinese or they use this at these, some of these things as study methods. And, you know, hey, look where they go. It worked work for me. Therefore, it should work for you. And this is how everybody should learn the language. Um, but that's, uh, you know, call that, you know, confirmation bias to a degree or survivorship bias. Hey, this is, you know, this worked for me. Therefore, it should work for you. When in reality, there's a lot of ways to learn a language, but there are many methods and, and that are more effective than others. Yeah, and I've come across many, many advanced learners who kind of don't really remember what it was like as a beginner. And a lot of people go to them for advice, and they're kind of like, uh, yeah, just do this thing. Um, a lot of times they've forgotten about all the struggles. They've forgotten that pinyin was once hard to read. They've forgotten you know, all the tone pain. So stick with it, guys. Find a variety of learning methods. Keep trying new stuff. You will eventually get there. You can, because you can learn Chinese. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion Chinese Graded Readers. These are easy to read novels written in Chinese for your reading pleasure. Today we are talking about a level two Mandarin Companion Graded Reader, Sherlock Holmes and a Scandal in Shanghai. This is actually a sequel to our other level one Sherlock Holmes book. And there's even a prequel to that one. So this... Sherlock Holmes character who's been adapted to a Chinese context. He has a Chinese name, which is Gao Ming, runs through three levels of our books, and they're all great. It's based on the Sherlock Holmes story, Sherlock Holmes and a Scandal in Bohemia, 
except we adapted this one into 1927 China, uh, Shanghai period, and it's great. We actually are using real historical figures in this book. Uh, there's two, uh, a movie actress and kind of a American guy who was kind of, I guess, the boss, you know, the American enclave there at the time. And uh, historical photos and drawings that went into the illustrations for the book. Of course, we followed the, the plot of the uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story but yeah it has been chineseified into a really great story so you can go out and get it today it's sherlock holmes and a scandal in shanghai a level two manner companion graded reader using only 450 basic characters you can find it on ibooks amazon kobo or wherever you get your books All right, John, we have a listener review that we're going to read here. This comes from ABCDFGHJJKLGPQRZWXY7 via Apple Podcasts from Great Britain. She, this person, he, she says, amazing. Very good for people who are newly trying to learn Chinese. I could listen to this all day. Well, thanks so much, ABCDFGHJKLGPQRZWXY7 via Apple Podcasts. So we appreciate your review. The first review where their name was... Almost as long as their comments, huh? <laughs> you got me there. Thank you for that. All right, it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I actually have a rant. So um, my daughter, you know, is 11. She's here in Shanghai, and she's studying Chinese. And it's a class for native speakers. And the teacher wants each kid to go and find a news story, read the news story, and come back to class and present it. And the thing is, it's actually kind of hard for Chinese kids to find news stories, not because they can't use computers and devices and not because there's not tons of Chinese news, but because there doesn't really seem to be news for kids in Chinese. Now, I hope I'm wrong about this. And if I'm wrong, someone please tell me because I've helped her try to search. And like if you do this in English, news for kids, kids news, like you find so Mm -hmm. many sites. And some of it's for teachers, helping kids learn to read. Some of it's for kids, learning learning to read the news on their own. Like, so many different sites. But if you try all these different, you know, Chinese words, you know, xinwen or artong xinwen or xinxiaonian xinwen, all these different things, you find a little bit, but a lot of it is, like, for adults about kids. Um, hmm. Or the one, the one for, like, teens... Um, is just like not really that different from a regular Chinese news website and doesn't seem to be designed at all for kids. And so I was just kind of like, man, this is annoying. And this also relates to the thing we were talking about earlier where, you know, Chinese kids' books aren't as good as you would hope. Like if there were better news sites for Chinese kids, maybe that would be a little better for uh, learners, but, you know, maybe not. But anyway, for my daughter, who's a native speaker, it was just annoying that there's not more out there. I mean, come on, it's, you could that, just that's put too stuff bad, John. on the internet. Yeah, down downsides of state-controlled media. Okay, I said <laughs> that out loud, but <laughs> but uh, I guess they're. I was thinking about this. I don't think that's exactly why, but I'm not really sure. So maybe someone could tell us. Well, if you have any insights, let us know. But in the meantime, I guess our kids won't be getting their news in Chinese. 
All right. In the meantime, we can listen to Jared's rant, or is it a rave? Okay, John, I've got a rave today. I'm a I'm a ravey type guy. You know, I looked at the past. I don't have a lot of rants. I, don't know, I guess look for the positive. But here we go. Uh, there is this tool I found. It's online. It's called. I don't actually know the correct pronunciation, but it's like Cath Oven. So C A T H O V E N. Cath Oven. Cath Oven. Cath Oven. Whatever. Uh, dot com. Oh, and you mean, so this you it, mean Cat Hoven. Exactly. Cat Hoven. There you go. It's for cats. No, it's not. It's actually a tool for teachers, and it is kind of like a leveling and text analysis tool for yeah for, for teachers. Um, and it's great. It has a lot of cool features for English and even Spanish, German, some other things on being able to like even level text, analyze text. But this so far is the best text analyzer for Chinese that I found. Um, and and I'll say that it analyzes it. It compares, like, you, you copy and paste a text in there in Chinese, and it'll compare it to an HSK level. But it spits it out in, like, a really clean graph that I just haven't seen. It parses the language quite decently. And I'm like, this is good. So I've got to recommend it because it's good. It's the best thing out there that I've seen online for analyzing HSK text, at least for something free that's available online. Nice. I wish it did more than just HSK, but hey, we'll take it. Yeah, I, I know. Maybe maybe someday they might be able to upload your own word list up there and compare against that or something. Well, why don't you build your own then, Jared? Well, I just might, John. I just might. My name's Dave Landis. Dave is a longtime Mandarin Companion reader who we've been in touch with for nearly 10 years. I am a middle school teacher at a Chinese Christian school in Alameda, California. And this last summer, during my summer break, I spent a month in a language immersion program at Chinese Language Institute in Guilin, China. While Dave's efforts have varied at times, his dedication to learning Chinese has always been there. He's a good example to all of us that no matter where you are or how long your journey, there is more to learn, and our limits are often those of our own making. Stay with us. All right, Dave, why did you start learning Chinese? Well, that goes back to high school. I have always had a love for language. I studied two years of French and two years of German. My French teacher was a tremendous inspiration to me. However, my German teacher was very boring. Well, before we really get into that, I'm curious to know what was that difference? Teaching style. She was just a lot more lively. He was kind of droned on. Mm. I guess kind of like that Ferris Bueller teacher. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> But there was a saving grace in that class. I picked up an old, old copy of a German-graded reader. A German-graded reader. A German-graded reader. The thing was really old. Wow. It started out very simple. It had lots of cognates in it. Rot, Blau, Grun, Vata. You know, just things that sound like we have in English. Yep. And little by little, they weaned you off the cognates and integrated the uh, more difficult German. Mm -hmm. And I found myself reading German. Wow. 
eventually I could read about this guy named Till Eugenspiegel. I hope I said his name correctly. It's been a while. But that experience way back when I was a young kid taught me that graded readers were integral in learning languages. Wow. That sounds like a formative early language learning experience. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so when I saw books like Chinese Breeze or Mandarin Companion, it did not take much to convince me to make those purchases. Sounds like German turned out to be a decent experience for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like you could speak a secret code. I was growing up in the Midwest in Kansas, mostly English, you know, very few foreign languages there. So knowing a foreign language is kind of like knowing a secret code that a lot of other people didn't know. Well, at what point did you finally get into Chinese? Well, before I learned Mandarin, my first Asian language was actually Vietnamese. Oh, really? Uh, Yes, yes. Uh, Back at that time, we had a lot of refugees coming in from Vietnam. And at my university, there were a number of Vietnamese students learning mathematics, computer science, engineering. And those were natural majors for them to pursue because the language proficiency was not so demanding of those Mm. majors. I mean, lots of problem solving and such. And so I started picking up a little bit of language, and eventually um, I was a little conversant in the language of Vietnamese. So was this just with association with your classmates? I mean... Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Wow. Yes. Association of classmates. And I actually made very good friends with two brothers. We actually carpooled together. And so, you know, Friday night after school, take them home. Hey, Dave, come in for supper. So I started learning Vietnamese food and really developed appreciation for the language, the culture, the food and such. It was a lot of fun. It was totally foreign to me. I mean, you know, here in Kansas (laughs) and a few years later, I started meeting students from Taiwan and China. Mm -hmm. This is back in the late 80s and China was starting to open up. Yeah. And so one day I see this guy outside. He's doing these really weird movements. I go, what is he doing? He was doing Tai Chi. Ma, I'd never yeah. seen that before. I see. And with the opening up of relations with the U.S. and China, my university offered a Chinese class. And so I took a semester class and really loved it. Well, this guy doing Tai Chi out there, I mean, did you go and talk to him? I mean, what was your impression at that point? Not that I can recall, but I did talk to other students and made friends with them. Wow. So you went and took a Chinese class at university. So what was that experience like? It was very fun, but it was not a European language, you know, that you had to learn to write characters. Mm -hmm. You had to learn this thing called pinyin. We had these things called language labs. So you had to put on these big headphones and play a reel-to-reel tape. But I enjoyed the experience. And at the end of a semester, yeah, I could write simple essays and things like that. What was your experience like in learning Vietnamese? So I imagine probably just some basic Vietnamese. But did that help you at all when you were deciding, hey, I want to take this class and learn Mandarin? Oh, absolutely. Because there are some cognates between the two languages. I think Cantonese had a bigger influence on Vietnamese than Mandarin. Mm. But there were some similarities. Oh, that's interesting. I imagine in the late 80s, you know, the materials for learning Chinese are probably relatively sparse. <laughs> yes, I cut my teeth on elementary Chinese readers. I don't mm. know if you're familiar with them, but it came from the Beijing Language Institute. A lot of drills, repetition drills, substitution drills. 
I still have the books on my bookshelf. And it was a reasonably good book. It was good enough that I was able to talk to people. Like I said, I had friends from Taiwan mm -hmm. and China, and I could chat with them a little bit. That's great. Well, who else was taking these classes back then? Because I imagine it wasn't necessarily a real popular language to study. I know in the 80s it was you know, Japan. You know, That's what, where everyone was looking at. All right. Well, we had a few Asian students. I think most of them were Japanese. So it was not a big transition for them to study Chinese. Hmm. But, you know, I went in there and I kind of dove in head first. And if I made a mistake on a quiz or something like that, I'd get angry at myself. <laughs> I've now learned that it's okay to make mistakes and just chill out a little bit on that issue. <laughs> so I'm not as perfectionist as I was back then. Well, did you continue studying after this semester? What, what, what kind of happened next for you? Well, I moved to California and uh, took a job here in the Bay Area. And I've been here ever since. I moved here in 1990. It wasn't long after that that I met a lovely lady from Taiwan yeah. who's now my wife. Mm. And I found that knowing Mandarin was very helpful in getting her attention. You got to tell us the story. How did this all work out? Well, actually, when I lived in Kansas with some of my friends from Taiwan, we conducted a Bible study in English. One of the guys I worked with, he actually moved out here ahead of me. And so when uh, I moved out here, I attended the church he did. And he said, we have a sister church in San Jose. Mm. And so that's where I moved down there and tried to get something similar that started. And actually, my wife eventually joined on board and the rest is history. We got married. I moved here in 1990, and by 92, I got married. Wow, okay. So she joined your Bible study class, and you looked at each other and said, hey, let's get married. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Short story. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> Internet show. But, yeah. But, okay, but I got to hear this, though. How did Chinese help you develop that relationship with her? It was an icebreaker. It helped me to talk to her. And eventually, when things got serious, I actually wrote a letter to her parents. Oh, wow. Tell us about this. Well, I couldn't do it now. I'm of the school <laughs> that you don't need to learn to, to write Chinese characters. But I wrote a simple letter, and my mother-in-law's feedback was, oh, his handwriting in Chinese is neater than his English handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the case for most of us. <laughs> yes. So, But it worked, it so, sounds like. But it worked, yes. Yeah. So uh, I've been to Taiwan, I think, six times. I, most recent was uh, my wife and I went this year, mm -hmm. back in April. And then a few months later, in June, I was in China in Guilin studying Mandarin. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, okay. So you got married to your lovely wife from Taiwan. I'm imagining her English was better than your Chinese. Maybe you talk about oh, this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> what, what's, what's this communication the... happening like with you guys? It's mostly in English. I mean, 95% <laughs> of the time. In, yeah. Well, uh, like you had that one podcast a few months ago where you talked about bilingual spouses, mm -hmm. and typically the guys who married Chinese wives, they usually speak English, even though they may be proficient in the language. Yeah, I guess that's one of my big regrets, is probably not speaking to her more in, in Chinese, but, you know, it's she's very quick to correct me. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes that kind of breaks the flow. I'm curious, do you ever find yourself speaking English and she replies in Chinese and you have a conversation this way? Sometimes she'll talk to the kids in Chinese. They understand Mandarin. My son, he understands it, doesn't speak it very well. My daughter, she kind of gets by. We actually shared an online teacher 
when she was in university, I was taking classes with e-Chinese learning. And she said, oh, Dad, can I try that? I said, absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to encourage that. That's great. That's really neat. Well, I'm curious to know a little bit about your Chinese skills at this point. From when you got married, just making a guess here, is that maybe you kind of plateaued for a while, I'm assuming, in Chinese? And maybe there was a point where you said, hey, I really want to get into this. Well, kids came along and just life And it wasn't until the kids were in late grade school, they took Kung Fu lessons. And Hmm. one of the things they offered parents were Tai Chi lessons. So I ended up taking Tai Chi, ended up going to Xi'an with my teacher. And I was there for nine days. And that's where I realized, oh, I really should be studying Mandarin again. Hmm. So I started taking online platforms Chinese pod. That's where I first learned about John Pasden, yo-yo Chinese. But with time, I wasn't satisfied with my development. So I ended up taking a class at a local community college for a quarter. Mm -hmm. The Chinese teacher spoke too much English for my liking. Mm. And they didn't offer a continuation class the following quarter. So I would have had to wait till the fall. So I said, I need to look for something else. So Mm. um, I looked at San Jose State University, really wasn't terribly impressed with the teacher. She didn't really want to tell me too much about the program. So I said, okay, I'm going online. Mm. And that's where I found out about eChinese learning. Mm -hmm. And so I had a two-year contract with them, took a break for a while, and then tried italki for a while, then took a break from that. Last year, I decided I wanted to study during one of my summer breaks. So that's how I found out. And thanks to this podcast, I learned about the Chinese Language Institute in Guilin. One of your previous guests spent two months there. I, yeah, I think it's- looked him up on um, LinkedIn and he said, hey, go there. It's great school. Sure is. You know, I'm curious to know a little bit about this, okay? So it sounds like, you know, and this isn't uncommon. I've, I've talked to a number of individuals, you know, who similar, hey, I started learning Chinese, took a break, took a long break, got back in, whatever. What kind of kept you going? What's something that kind of kept your interest in saying, hey, you know, I, I don't want to give up on this. I want to pick this up again. One thing is, is I picked up a copy of, I can't remember if it was The Secret Garden or one of the first level books from Chinese. Secret Greece. Garden's Mandarin Companion. Uh-huh. Yes, Mandarin Companion, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I love it. And I just reread it. The first time I read it, it was really painful. Mm. I mean, I remember transferring everything into Google Translate and looking up th- everything and it was scanning things with pleco uh-huh. it was very tiring i guess you could say mm. but i persisted and with time i developed more proficiency in reading it read it in preparation for an interview i decided to reread it popped up my kindle a few nights ago and started reading it and it was just such a such an easy read very wow. pleasant very enjoyable and that told me right there hey, you've made a lot of progress. Yeah, a victory lap. <laughs> victory lap. <laughs> well, hey, tell us a little bit more, though, about the CLI. So I, I am familiar with it. I do know the owners gather the Fry Brothers. It's a great program down there. Anyone listening, hey, go check it out in Guilin. But did you decide to say, I'm going to go to China for like, you know, a couple months here. I'm just going to go hardcore learning Chinese. So tell me what that thought process and what led you up to doing that. Well, since I'm a middle school teacher, I have summers off. Mm. So... I decided to take this opportunity this last summer. COVID was finally behind us. Mm -hmm. COVID really put a kibosh on my plans. Mm -hmm. 
I planned actually to go in 2020. Had no concept that COVID was going to well, squash yeah, everything. I don't think anyone did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I used that time to persist in my studies. I had an ICOT talkie tutor for a while. Actually, I think it kind of did a lot to help me get ready for the summer. And then, you know, my wife was thinking, well, Taiwan's too hot. She suggested, actually, I look at China. And I think she even mentioned Guilin, that it wouldn't be too hot there. Mm -hmm. In June, that's the case. It's warm. It's doable. But it's it's doable. They have AC. (laughs) But even post-COVID, the flights that I was looking up, there wasn't an abundance of them. And I thought, hey, why not? take the train and see the country. So I took one of the bullet trains from Shenzhen into Guilin, mm-hmm. and it was fantastic scenery. Once I got into Guangxi, I knew I was in Guangxi because it was just exotic. You had those karst formation mountains, and I just fell in love with the place. Being in Guilin, people there were very friendly. On weekends at CLI, we'd have little excursions. So the first weekend I was there, I went to the Terrace Rice Fields, TTN. Mm. And it was raining a lot, and I really didn't want to go hiking in the rain with the others, you know. And so I just had my HSK book. I'm sitting there. I'm soaking in gorgeous scenery. And all of a sudden, there's this cup of tea placed at my right, and there's this lady from Guangzhou gave me that tea. So she and her husband started chatting with me. I was just amazed that it was just so random. In Chinese or in, English? In Chinese, oh, wow. yeah, in Chinese. I don't know if they spoke in English or not. So the warmth that I felt there was just so tremendous. Also, just seeing the uh, Yangshuo. Beautiful. Oh, was, oh man, the place That is place is just amazingly beautiful. It kind of reminded me of China's version of Yosemite Park. I mean, just spectacular scenery, yeah. but in its own unique and exotic way. Anyone listening, Yangshuo, it's right next to Guilin, just south, right? 30 minutes? Guilin is actually kind of like a region, yes, but yes. The Guilin City itself, it was about an hour and a half, two hour drive. There you go. Um, it's got you know, a winding river through these you know very sharp mountains just jutting out of nowhere almost. It's uh, a right. famous scene on the back of the five RMB bill. It's a 20 RMB. Oh, 20 RMB. So. It's been a while. 20 on BART. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, that was one of your things you had to do. With the tensions that exist right now between Washington and Beijing, I was concerned I was going to meet some anti-American sentiment and I found zero anti-American sentiment. People nice there were just so kind and friendly and welcoming. They heard me speaking Mandarin that just opened up so much in the way of conversations, just that welcoming attitude that I felt there for the whole time. That's really neat. You know, I also know this is not your first time to a Chinese-speaking country, right? But it looks like there was a big break before you had to do that. So what was it like being on the ground there? It had been quite some time. Hey, I'm in China. I'm trying to use my Chinese. <laughs> well, it was a challenge at times. Sometimes I ran into dialect issues. Oh. And I'm glad I did. I'm glad it just wasn't all standard Putonghua textbook Mandarin. I remember across the street from CLI, there was this little shop, and I went to buy some things, and I said, 多少钱? And they said, 十二. Mm. 
sure, uh, sure, sure. Uh. I'm scratching my head. Sure, ten what? And and the lady pulled out a calculator. And it was twelve. Oh, okay. She, she dropped the R instead oh. of saying sure. R. Oh, she said sure. sure. Uh. <laughs> and so I realized that okay, a little bit of difference, but. We have that in America, too. I mean, we have our dialectical differences. That reminds me of one experience. I was down in, in Guangxi traveling with my brother, and there was this really, like, she was 90. It was in one of these kind of tourist towns, you know. It was like some ancient town. And I was trying to talk to her, and I couldn't understand what she was saying. So there was a, another just Chinese guy. He listened to her. He said it to me in standard Mandarin. And I was like, oh. And I replied to her in Mandarin, and they were kind of with the circle. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, I also realized that if I want to have conversations that I could process, that I needed to speak to someone younger than me. That was very helpful. Most of the time, my problem was just not understanding their standard Mandarin. But it was also good to get over there, to be surrounded by it. Because one of my frustrations was my listening comprehension was not where I really wanted it. And being over there was a tremendous boon to developing my confidence in listening comprehension. Mm. So and that'd be great to hear a little bit more about this. So like what areas do you feel like you really made some progress during this time? And also remind, how long exactly was it? Was this a month and a half or? I was there for four weeks. Oh, okay, great. I wish I could have stayed longer, but you know, I also had family from Taiwan come over in July. So I should have been back, you know, see them as well mm-hmm. now. But um, I was trying to work on my listening comprehension, and I just found out, okay, if I talked to my teachers, that was a big, just going back and forth. had three different teachers, and each class was two hours in length. So every day I would have what they called a comprehensive teacher. And so with that teacher, I decided to resume my HSK-4 studies. So I pulled out the standard HSK book, Mm -hmm. and we reviewed through all that. Uh, I got through almost the whole book in a month. It was all review. I had another teacher who was my writing and reading teacher, and she'd give me different articles about China to read from Chairman's Bow. And so that was very interesting because I could see different aspects of Chinese society and how it's developed, some of the issues they face. It was funny. I'd write sentences and I'd make mistakes and she'd just shake her and say, butoy, butoy, butoy. <laughs> <laughs> I also like telling her dad jokes in Chinese. Do you have a dad joke for us then in Chinese? Well, let's see. I'd have to, I'll, I'll say in English. Sure, just sure. It simple, but okay. So there's this guy He's a teacher in China. He's teaching English, and he's teaching prefixes and suffixes uh, uh, to the, the students. And he said, okay, well, if you can speak three languages, what type of person is that? So one of his students raised a hand and says, he's trilingual? Okay, yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, trilingual, yeah, tri means three. Okay, well, if we want to say someone who speaks only two languages, let's say they speak Mandarin and Cantonese, what type of person is that? Well, another student raises his hand and says, bilingual. Oh, the teacher says, very good, very good. You know this stuff. So the last question is, so if someone who speaks three languages is trilingual, someone who speaks two languages is bilingual, what do we call someone who speaks only one language? And the smartest student in the class raised her hand, and the teacher called her and said, American? That's right. <laughs> American. <laughs> American, yeah, American. Yes. Yeah. 
classic joke. Did they get it? Abby saw it coming. Oh, okay, she, right, so I, I saw she saw it coming. <laughs> the last teacher I had, my online teacher, is actually married to an American who is a former CLI student himself, and they speak to each other at home in Chinese. And that was probably my favorite class because I didn't have a textbook. I didn't have any notes. She might look through my HSK book and say, oh, let's tell me about American holiday. And so I'd prefer it. But I spoke and listened to her for two hours. Mm. No English. Yeah. I'm taking notes. You know, she'll give me some vocabulary or something like that. And I took copious notes in pinyin. I was exhausted after two hours because I was just mentally drained. I was just spending so much energy speaking Mandarin. Mm-hmm. But it was the best tired feeling that I could have is that, that HSK-4 level, mm-hmm. which there's still a long ways to go. But with HSK-4 level vocabulary, I could carry on a conversation with someone for two hours. That's a fantastic feeling. It's a fantastic feeling, and it's spurring me to go on. Well, and you know, you bring up something that's really important. I talk about this sometimes to some teachers and especially students in different language programs. It is the idea of like language endurance. You know, how do you expect you're going to do well on like a two-hour Chinese exam if you can't sit down and have a conversation in Chinese for two hours, right? Right, right, exactly. One of the shortcomings of the HSK system is a lot of people say, hey, I can read all this grammar and read all these dialogues and such, but listening and and speaking is kind of lacking. So I think that's the nice thing about participating in that program with CLI is that I was able to kind of fill in some of those gaps that a textbook really doesn't meet. I totally understand that. Well, I also understand that your job right now, you're teaching there at your school, and that they are also teaching Mandarin there at the school. I'm curious, how often does your Mandarin come in handy in your workplace? Quite often. When I start, I teach math and science. It's in English. When I start class, I always start it in Mandarin. I say, woman shang ke, zao shang hao. And the students stand up, lan la shi, zao shang hao. And then I think once everyone's quiet, they ching zuo. That's the extent of my speaking in class. Sometimes I've had a few students, you know, finish teaching and the kids are working. Sometimes they'll come up to me with their... Chinese made easy textbook and they'll ask me, Mr. Landis, what's this mean? Mm-hmm. And I just kind of grin and say, well, I mean, this is what it means. And it just kind of like, and then I tell the teacher and she grins. Sometimes I do uh, crossing guard duty in the mornings and I meet parents all, da shang hao, you know, mm-hmm. agree and they'll respond back in kind. When we have parent teacher conferences, uh-huh. occasionally I run into parents whose English is not good. So one of the Mandarin teachers will sit in the conference with Mm me. I try to speak to them in Mandarin. Over the years, I've listened to you and John said, you learn to be proficient in the area that you know. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And so I've developed vocabulary about school Mm -hmm. and school life and things that students need to do. And so it's not difficult for me to explain to the parent if the student's struggling with something. Well, that's great. I imagine they appreciate that. Something I'm curious to hear a little bit more about is your relationship with your wife's parents. So they're in Taiwan. They're Taiwanese. 
how has your language ability influenced and perhaps impacted your relationship with them? Well, my mother-in-law, she passed away oh, a previous year, but they did live with us for a while, and they eventually moved out and lived in a senior home with a bunch of other Chinese. But I guess one of my breakthrough moments with them, I remember a number of years ago, was driving them somewhere. I was driving down Highway 680, and... I started talking to them in Chinese, and it was a simple conversation. Back then, it uh, wasn't as good as I am now, but mm-hmm. it, was a, it was basic. Like, it was a good connection with mm. them. When I got back from China, my wife was saying, oh, you got to talk to Baba. You got to talk to Baba. Oh, your Chinese is really improved. Go talk to Baba. And so Skype calls. I've talked to him some. Did you ever see any like difference in your relationship when you were able to connect with them using Chinese versus maybe previously when you weren't able to or weren't able to do as well? Well, my father-in-law's English is not terribly proficient. So the only way I can really connect with him is by speaking Mandarin. Mm-hmm. They moved back to Taiwan about 10 years ago. I see. And 10 years ago, my proficiency wasn't that good. But when I went back in April, yeah, I was able to talk to him some. And then when we have Skype calls, I talk to him. I know he's very happy that I can talk to him. Well, that's really neat. I'm not going to ask your age, Dave, but you're older than the average Chinese learner, I would say. So what would you say to someone who might be thinking, hey, I'm too old to learn Chinese or ah, that ship has sailed or or whatever? I would say that's nonsense. Right now at CLI, there's someone there that's older than me. I'm a big proponent of growth mindset. And I I tell my kids, you can't say, I can't. You say, I don't know how to do this. You say, I don't know how to do this yet. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing with learning language. You have to say, I don't know how to do this yet, but I will learn. And so it's all mindset. If you say, I'm too old, well, look at Steve Kaufman. Yeah. He's in his 70s, yep. and he's amazing, he's right? He's learning some Slavic languages nowadays. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I follow him. Yeah, after I heard him on one of your podcasts, I started following him. That guy, he's amazing. And he started learning a good chunk yeah. of his language for learning took place post-65. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. And it's quite amazing, you know, what he, what he's done. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. You know, sometimes I tell people, you know, I started learning Chinese when I was 30. <laughs> You know, some people say, oh, it's too old. It's not. No, no. The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. That's right. That's a good Chinese proverb there. Yes, yeah. Well, Dave, looking back at your kind of Chinese journey, even language learning journey, how do you feel that learning Chinese has impacted and changed your life? It's opened up my eyes to a world that I think a lot of people don't see. I would say that we go with any language. Once you can enter into that world and look around, I think I have a different appreciation or understanding of what Chinese people are like than someone who's, you know, maybe somewhere in the Midwest where there's not a large Chinese population and uh, might carry a lot of stereotypes. But getting over there, meeting people, interacting with them, seeing how welcoming and friendly they are, I think that's made a big difference. You know, it's just enriched my life in so many ways. My family, they've always been very accepting of me. Could not have asked for better in-laws than my parents, my mother and father. They're just wonderful people. Wow, that's really neat to hear that. 
And so, Dave, what advice would you give to someone who's learning Chinese right now or, or even thinking about it? Well, read. Pick up Mandarin companion books. Pick up Chinese Breeze. There's a lady, I think her name's Yun Xian. You can find her books on Amazon. Mm. She's written a lot of books that are paired to all the HSK levels. And they're very enjoyable reading. That's great. Read books. Get a tutor, for goodness sake. That is, I didn't have that great of experience at the local community college. Uh, but once I got a one-on-one tutor, it was amazing how quickly just having that one-on-one interaction helped me progress. And I can recommend a very good Chinese school in Guilin that someone, if they really want to get a good experience. <laughs> and one of my classmates at CLI, he started out kind of newbie level. And I think he was there three months. He, he ended up about HSK4 by the time he left. So he, he really progressed rapidly. Wow. So if you can go overseas and somewhere and study Mandarin, by all means, do that. Oh, that can be a great experience for, no, for a lot of people. Dave, I do know you have a blog, and, and where can people find that? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's laowaidawei.com. I believe that has a hyphen in it. I don't have it in front of me. I got right here, laowaidawei.com. Yeah, laowaidawei.com. And I talk a lot about the books I've read, some of the platforms I've used, and recently talk about my experience at CLI. So if people wanted to know what that was like, you could get more details there. Well, we'll go ahead and put a link in the show notes so anyone can uh, find out a little bit more about you and about some of the things that you've done. Oh, great. Well, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story with us. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. And if it weren't for you and John, I wouldn't be where I'm at in many ways with the books and with my experience with CLI. So I want to take my hat off to you guys and thank you for all the work you've been doing. Oh, shucks. (laughs) (laughs) You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, marketer, investor, lawyer, diplomat, director, delegate, and that one gal named Carol. Please subscribe to our podcast, share it with a friend, and if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. You can also reach out to us at mannercompanion.com or mannercompanion on social media. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese Podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo. And I'd like to thank our special guest, Dave Landis. And of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. I'm Jared Turner. See you next time.